God has promised all believers, all believers, that we have what we need for our spiritual pilgrimage. Every believer has all that they need. The Bible tells us this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. When we have been born again, we are given access to all of the resources necessary to live a life that demonstrates that God is our Father, that Jesus is our Savior, and that the Spirit of God is our strength. All believers have been given new life. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, where you are, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is not theoretical. This is factual. Every believer that's been born again, they've turned from their sin, they've turned to Christ for eternal salvation. We've been made a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Uh, take a look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to be looking at a lot of Scripture passages this morning, so prepare yourself. Not only have we been declared righteous, which is glorious, but God's righteousness is an available resource to be on display in our lives. God's righteousness is an available resource to be on display in our lives. Now, John is obviously writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he is demonstrating through the, throughout the course of 1 John that there are some obvious differences between those who are of the world, of Satan, and those who are of the church that are of God. He demonstrates this regularly throughout the letter. He's making sure that we understand that we can know that we have eternal life. He wants us to understand that if we're going to be influenced by someone, we had better make sure that that influence that's coming our way comes from someone that demonstrates the character of God. And so, right in the thick of that argument, in 1 John chapter 3, take a look with me beginning in verse 7. He's, He's trying to encourage the church. He says, little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. In other words, if someone is a believer, there will be demonstrations of that righteousness. Now, it's not our own righteousness. I think that's very important to understand. No matter what point in your Christian uh, growth you are, you do not possess in and of yourself righteousness. The righteousness that you and I want to display is a righteousness not our own. It's God's righteousness. It comes through the Spirit. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy, bring to nothing, the works of the devil. 
No one born of God makes a practice, continues on, lives in sin, makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Here is a reality, brothers and sisters, or listener. If God has saved you, you've turned from your sin and you've turned to Jesus Christ. God has saved you. He's forgiven your sin and He's granted you, declared you righteous. There will be demonstrations in life of that righteousness that God gives This doesn't mean that every second of every day we'll only do righteousness. I wish that that were the case. Don't you? Don't you wish you would never ever sin again once you come to saving faith? Well, that's not what this text tells us and it's not what the text that we're going to be studying tells us, but it does tell us that there's a, a change in our lives and that is that that sin that once dominated me that I could not vary from sway away from, lead away from. I couldn't, I couldn't outrun sin. That sin no longer has that power, that stranglehold on me. Head over please to Romans chapter 6. Because the power of God is available, those who belong to God do not need to allow sin to rule over them. So I'll say it this way. Those of us who belong to God, do not need to allow sin to rule over us. Paul is teaching us this concept throughout Romans chapter 6. Take a look please with me. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Actually, before I read this, I want to make an observation that's very important. The first observation that we should make when we're reading this, that in verses 1 through 10... Verses 1 through 10, there are no commands and there are no threats. No commands, no threats. Rather, Paul is speaking of an established reality about God's working in the lives of his people, in the lives of believers. So, with that being said, let's read the text from verse 1 down to verse 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, 
will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider, here's our first command, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's a second command. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Here's a third command. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But here's another command. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as, uh, to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So that's a long passage, and we're going to be studying it for a long time. There's a lot that is necessary for us to slowly digest because this is transformative gospel truth. Gospel truth. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, all believers have died to sin. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, all believers have died to sin. He asks a question, and it's a very important question, because he ended chapter 5 with the statement um, in, in verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So he asks a logical question. Okay, if if grace abounds at the increase of sin, why not just keep sinning so that grace may abound all the more? Isn't that a great thing? Isn't it good that God would be glorified that way? And he says um, this statement, are we to continue? The word there is epimeno. It's to remain. Are we to remain? It's a present tense. Continue. Shall we continually remain in the realm of sin? in order that grace may abound. And remember his, his emphatic answer. We discussed it last week. He said, Megenoita, it means let it never be. Let it never be that you would think that you should remain in the realm of sinful living so that God will be glorified in giving grace. That's, that's backwards. It's upside down. It's broken. His answer was emphatic. But then he gives us a why. Why should this not be the case? Well, first off, the first reason he gives is that we have died to sin. Look at verse 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So he asks this question in the word um, died to sin. The word died is in the aorist tense. It means it's something that took place at a time in the past. It's in the indicative mood. I want to share this with you because it's important. The indicative mood is not the mood of possibility. That would be the subjunctive mood. It might happen. It might not happen. The future, we will be dead to sin. The indicative mood is a mood of reality. You, believer, have died to sin. It took place at a point in time in the past. It's, it's, It's a done deal. It's a mood of reality. All right, well, that leads us to question um, how, how can we live in it? Well, you can't. You can't live in it if you're dead to it. 
So his first line of argumentation is to not continue in sin is a reality, and it's related to what God has already accomplished. Let me state that again, hopefully with a little, a little more helpful wording. We have died to sin. Did, did you make yourself die to sin? Or did God bring that about? That's a work of God. So Paul's line of reasoning for us not continuing on in sin is based upon an accomplishment of God, not an accomplishment of us. So we're talking about gospel still here, aren't we? I wonder, will he vary from the gospel at any point in the book of Romans? And the answer to that is no. He will not vary from the gospel at any point in the book of Romans, nor in the book of 1 Corinthians, nor 2 Corinthians, nor Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. He's not going to vary from the gospel. Why? Because that's the heart of the message. See, we are saved by God's glorious grace in the gospel, and we are transformed by God's glorious grace in the gospel, and we will be glorified by God's glorious grace in the gospel. This is a reality. So Paul is talking about something that God has accomplished. Okay, we have died to sin. Do you always feel like that's true? Perhaps this morning you had some struggles at one point or another for one reason or another. And of course, it's got to be your spouse's fault or your kid's fault. It's, it's, it's their fault, right? They did the pro- you know, they're the problem. No, you struggle with your own str- stuff every day. All right, so we've got to try to figure out what does he mean? What, in what sense have we died to sin? Well, here's one sense that we've died to sin. That is not Paul's point. We have died to the penalty of sin. That is Paul's point in other places. Not in Romans chapter 6. Died to the penalty of sin. So, in Romans chapter 8, when we get there in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. He's No penalty. It's been, it's been eradicated because Jesus paid it all all to him I owe. We're, we're familiar with it, but that's not his point here. Well, how about this one? We have died to the power of sin. Is that his point in this text? And I argue with you, not that you're going to argue back, because you're sitting there. That is his point in this text. Take a look with me at a number of verses in Romans chapter 6. Verse, uh, in chapter 6, look at verse 6 to start with. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that, okay, so he's talking about dying to sin, right? Our old self was, that's past tense, crucified with him in order that what? That the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Why? So that we would no longer be what? Say it with me. Enslaved to sin. Verse 7. For one who has died has been, what does it say? Set free from sin. Look down at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Look down at verse 17. 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So I think it's very clear that Paul is throwing repeated demonstrations that his point is that sin should not exercise dominion over you because of what God has done. Is that clear? God has decisively broken sin's ability to rule over you. Therefore, you and I should live in that reality of what God has done. Is that clear? That he's, this is the concept he's getting across. Alright, so that leads us to another question. And it's going to take us a little while to think about. Because you and I are not ignorant. Right? You're not ignorant, are you? You don't think you don't sin, right? The Apostle John would say, if you think you don't sin, you're a liar. 1 John chapter 1. So, here's the question. Have we died to the influence or passion or pull towards sin? Have we died to the influence of sin? And I would say, right from this text, but we're going to look at other texts, The answer to that question is no, we have not died from the possibility of sin influencing us. Look at verse 13. Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. If, ladies and gentlemen, We cannot be influenced by sin. Verse 13 would not be there. Am I correct? So he tells us, this is what happened. God has broken sin's power. Verse 13, don't yield yourself. Don't present yourself as an instrument of sin. Don't willingly place yourself under the control of sin again. Alright, well that's not the only text that talks about it, but it's important that it's in this text. Because this is the text we're studying but we also want to see other places in the Scriptures that give us a similar sense. Take a look, please, at Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. Now, I have to move a little bit quickly because we are going to look at a lot of texts. Try to keep up. Um, I'll do my best not to like, blow through them, but we have to move quickly or we're not going to get through all the texts of Scripture that we want to see. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's stop right there. Who is he talking to believers or unbelievers in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16? Believers. So he says, here's what believers ought to do. Walk in the spirit so that rather than gratifying the desires of the flesh, we gratify the desires of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. We do what the spirit wants. Down in verse 22 is going to tell us what that looks like. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. We're, we understand how that works. But verse 17 is both a very, I'm very thankful for it and I also um, am a little mad at it. Um, I'm thankful for it because it explains what I experience. I'm mad at it in the sense that I have to experience it. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh, what does it say? 
are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are what? Against the flesh. For these are what? Opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So you, you know what this feels like. Please give me some way of acknowledging that you know what this feels like. Because I want to tell you something. If you don't know what it feels like for your flesh and God's Spirit to be against one another, I have bad news for you. You have not come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior yet. It just means that only sin is controlling you. Only sin. So if there's no battle, it means you don't know Jesus. If you battle, it's an indication that God's Spirit is showing you this is the right way, the, the, the truth is right, and here's how to do it. And your flesh is saying, I like this way better. So the, the frustration that we experience is that this is not like a once-a-week you know, once a week occurrence that we've had this opposition within ourselves. It's every day. In fact, I propose to you it's most of the hours of the day that we're awake. Our flesh is saying something different than God's Spirit and God's Word. So there's a, there's a fight here. There's a struggle. So are we, are we dead to the influence of sin? No, sin, sin still influences our thinking and, and, and wants to rule over us. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Now as we come to Ephesians chapter 4, is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Believers, right? So this, it's very clear he's talking to believers. Now what does he say to them in verse 17 and following? Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must, what does it say? No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness, their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned. Christ is going to give us more instructions. We're going to come back to those in later weeks. But... The, the reason we're here is, why is he telling Christians not to act like they used to act? Not to think like they used to think? Because there's a possibility that we can walk like the old man walks. He's going to tell us we have to put off the old man and put on the new man. That's going to, that instruction is coming. Take a look at Colossians chapter 3. Same question. Is God communicating through Paul to believers or unbelievers when we get to uh, the book of Colossians? Believers, right? Colossians chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 5. He's going to tell us something very important that we're discussing. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. That's the same thing he says in Romans chapter 6. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Ooh, he tells us that same idea. Gives us that same idea in Romans chapter 6. We're going to talk about that in coming weeks. When Christ, who is, not who will be, but who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So he's talking to believers. He tells us about what's real. We have died. We have been made alive. We're in Christ. Christ is our life. These are great truths. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is 
idolatry. So he's, he's talking to believers. He tells us the glorious truths of the gospel. And then he says, and yet there's a possibility that we can act in our old way rather than in the new way. Do we see this? There's a battle. There's a battle. Take a look back in Romans now. Romans chapter 7. Now when we get into Romans chapter 7, he's going to be talking about the difference of being ruled over by the law or being ruled over by the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be that contrast that comes at the very end of Romans chapter 7. In verses 14 through 17, a very familiar section of Scripture. And can I just pause for a second? And you won't, This won't be the last time I say this this morning. My point right now, please understand, I think you're, you know me well enough, most of you, that you understand that I'm not saying, hey, listen, it doesn't matter if you sin. It's not a big deal. Everyone, everyone's clear that I'm not saying this. It's important to me that you understand I'm not saying, hey, it's not a big deal if you sin. Because I'm not. A lot of times when we think of Romans chapter 7 and these, this particular section of Scripture verses, uh, kind of we can utilize it as a little crutch. Well, you know, I really want to do the good things, but I do the bad things. And, and we kind of can, can make it so that we're not actually allowing God to change us the way we're supposed to be allowing Him to change us. Well, here's the text. Romans 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 6, should we continue in sin? Should we continue in a lifestyle of sin that grace may abound? And he says, no, that's absolutely not the way it's supposed to be. And he follows that up by telling us that it's, it's actually not possible, it's actually not possible for a true believer in Jesus Christ to live out their lives continually under the influence of the realm of sin. He says this is an impossibility. That doesn't mean that we don't sin. We just went at length to say that, right? What he's saying is, you and I can't even try. Like, you couldn't this week... This is not a suggestion. Not a suggestion. You couldn't this week say, all right, I'm really tired of this fight with sin. I'm going to take a vacation. Uh, this week, I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to care. I'm just going to, I'm going to give myself to whatever desire comes into my heart. I'm just going to do this all week long. You will find yourself in grave misery. And you know what I say to that? For this, you should say, God, thank you. Thank you that you wouldn't let me do whatever I want all the time without the consequence of that oppression, anxiety, depression, dissatisfaction. Thank you, God, that you wouldn't let me just continue in sin that grace may abound. How? How can we? How can we? 
who have died to sin, just say, ah, who cares? I'm going to live in it. You can't. It's impossible. It cannot happen. This is, this is his argument. This is what he says. The reason you can't continue in sin that grace may abound is because you have no ability to do so. God won't let you rest in that condition. Now, I think some people have tried. I think some people have tried um, unsuccessfully to ignore God as believers. Maybe you have ignored God at one point or another as a believer. But the whole time, while you convinced yourself in that season that God wasn't convicting you, that God wasn't directing you, that God wasn't calling you back, when you, when you come to your senses like the prodigal son did, and you return as the prodigal son did, you remember all the prompters that God was giving you through that time. He wasn't leaving me alone. He wasn't uncaring. He wasn't not calling me back to repentance. He wasn't doing that. Paul's answer to whether a believer should continue in a lifestyle of sin is a believer can't do this. This doesn't mean that a believer cannot sin, but rather that he cannot live still, still, continually to live. He uses a future active indicative and he, uh, he, he emphasizes it with the word still. He, we, we cannot live continually going into the future still in sin. This is how he writes it. He, he goes to great lengths to ensure that we understand that it's not happening. So let me ask you this question, and, and it's, you already answered the question, but we're going to look at it a little bit more because it's, it's important for us to have a, a rounded understanding of this. Do Christians, born-again Christians, struggle with sin? Now, it's not just that there's an influence there. Do Christians actually struggle with sin? Well, we have a number of texts that I want for us to look at to, to, to consider this. First of all, Philippians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I want to remind you of someone called John Mark. John Mark joined Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey in Acts chapter 12. He was an assistant helping in whatever way um, God had designed. And when you come to Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, John Mark returned to Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't like it was a scheduled return. How do we know? Because it was a contention between Paul and Barnabas the next time they were headed out. Barnabas wanted to bring him. Paul was like, no, that, that guy, he, he's, a, he's a bailer. He bails when, when things get difficult. We, we don't have time for that. We've got a lot of work to do. We're going to dangerous territory. We can't have him turn back to Jerusalem again. Not happening. Of course, we know later on in John Mark's life, Paul, in his very last epistle, 2 Timothy, said, please send Mark to me. He's profitable profitable to me for the ministry. Just shows you a little bit about what happens when we wander off course, when we walk away from God's calling that God can bring us back and make us profitable again. It's a glorious thing. So John Mark illustrates the fact that there can be a struggle. How about this? In Philippians chapter 4, take a look at verses 2 and 3. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In other words, they're fighting. 
Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the Gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Judea and Syntyche are believers. It's obvious. There were fellow workers. It's obvious. Their names were written in the book of life. It's obvious. And yet there was a contention among them. They were struggling with sin. Now, do you think that no one had said, hey, this is wrong? Someone, someone did. And you think that the Spirit of God didn't say, hey, this is wrong? Of course He did. That's what the Spirit does. He reminds us. He teaches us the things that are true. And yet they were still in the, 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 the struggle. Why? Because real, genuine believers can struggle with sin. Not just the influence, but actually sin impacting them. Take a look a little further. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to ask you a question I've asked a few times already. When Paul writes to the Corinthian church, is he writing to you believers or unbelievers? Believers. He calls them saints. He has every expectation they're going to be in heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verses 1 and following. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as to people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of or walking after the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For uh, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who waters, nor he who, uh, excuse me, he who plants, nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, he's talking about some problems in a, in a selfish church. Am I correct? And he clearly talks to them as if they're believers. Even though he says they're, they're not able to handle meat. They need milk. He says that they, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they're only acting in a human way. They're acting merely human. But he talks about uh, one person planting, another person, per- person watering, and God bringing forth what? Increase. These are believers he's talking about. And yet, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians you know that there are a lot of problems amongst this Christian church. Struggle. Now we're not talking about um, there's, a, there's a churning inside. Actually giving in to sin. Actually giving in. Take a look now at Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and read this next part with me please, and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's making it very obvious that there can be a struggle with sin. How significant can this sinfulness become? We don't have time to turn to these passages, but maybe jot them down. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Verses 27 through 31, it's the Lord's Supper passage. He lets us know, remember, that we're to participate in a worthy manner by examining ourselves. And he lets them know that in an unworthy participation, which means we're not remembering Christ, we're not examining ourselves, we're not proclaiming his death, we're being really, it's, it, we're making the table about ourselves. 
He says there were people in that church that demonstrated in life and in the participation of the Lord's table that they were, they were living their own agenda rather than God's agenda. And he says, it's so significant that some have slept. Now he's not talking about taking a really great nap. He's talking about God brought the end of their lives. He hastened the end of their lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells the, the church, listen, pray for one another. Pray for a brother that's overtaken in sin, essentially. I don't say that you should pray for someone to experience the sin unto death. A sin that leads to death. We don't have time to get into the nuts and bolts of that. Just understand this. There are struggles that overtake even a believer that are significant. So I bring all of this up again. Not, not, not to make you feel comfortable in your sin. That is never our goal or intention. Rather, I bring these examples to you to help us remember and help us deepen our understanding of God's mercy and grace and to help us to see that our experience that is riddled with struggle is also seen in Scripture. Another great illustration of this, and it's, it's, it's a tough one to grapple with, is the example of Lot. You read about Lot in the Old Testament and you think, that's not a really great guy. And yet, we read about him in 2 Peter and he's called Righteous Lot. So this, these concepts should help us deepen in our appreciation of God's mercy and His grace, but also helps us as you go through this week. So I don't know what your problems are. I don't know where your deep struggles are. I don't know what it is that, what type of sinfulness that allures you or tries to rule over you. But I know there's something that is, is trying to rule you. This is not unexpected in the Christian life. Even though the text tells us that we have died to sin. The Bible gives us a well-rounded source of information on this. Here's what I want to do in the next couple of minutes, and I, I trust this is going to really be encouraging and helpful to all of us. While you and I struggle with our old nature, we are not left to struggle alone. We are not left to struggle alone. You're already in Hebrews chapter 12. You're already there. Look, please, beginning at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastens or chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, 
We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be, uh, excuse me, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is, this is good news, my brothers and sisters. When you struggle, God doesn't just leave you alone. He doesn't just leave you alone. He brings you back. Be thankful when you feel the dissatisfaction that you feel when you're not doing what's right. Be thankful. This is the hand of God. We don't have time to turn there, but in Philippians chapter 3, he tells us the same thing. Paul says, I have not attained unto that which I've been attained for. So I'm forgetting what's behind, and I'm reaching forward into that thing, those things that are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Then he says, you should be like this. You should think this way. You should say, I don't, I don't want to be held back by my sinfulness of the past, and I don't want to be buoyed by my successes of the past, forgetting those things that are in the past and reaching toward the things that are before, press toward the mark. If you don't think this way, he says in verse 15, God, God will remind you. God will make you aware of this. That is good news. When you stop pressing, God will let you know. Don't ignore His voice. Don't ignore His voice. Don't chalk it up to your, you know, the other voice in your head. When, when you are feeling dissatisfied, when you are feeling discouraged, when you are feeling anxious, when you are feeling angry, when you are feeling covetous, envious, jealous, these are works of the flesh and these are ways that God lets you know my spirit is not ruling over you right now. What does that feel like? Well, we talked about it last week. Jesus said it's this rest. We talk about it all the time. Galatians 5. The peace. There's love. There's joy. There's patience with people. There's kindness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. These things come from God. I'll let you know. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 12, the Bible says, Let him who thinks he stand, take heed, lest he fall. For, verse 13, there is no temptation overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, and I would just add just for concept, with His grace, will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way to escape that you may be able to bear up under it. They may be able to stand while it's pressing down. And then he tells us in the next verse, flee idolatry. Flee the idols of your heart. Run away from, from your own personal desires. Right in the midst of talking about our pride in verse 12, 
and fleeing idolatry in verse 14, we have this golden nugget in verse 13 that God, God is involved when I struggle. There's no temptation overtaking you, but such as this common man. Everyone's going through it. God is faithful. Will you allow him to rule over you? While the struggle is real, God wants us to know a few things about this struggle. Number one, sin does not own you any longer. Sin does not own you any longer. Secondly, you have new resources. And thirdly, God is with you in this process. We have what we need to deal with the sin that desires to rule over us. When Amy and I were first married, we decided to buy a laptop computer. We had the money in savings to buy it, but there was a six-month same-as-cash offer. So we would figured we'd hold on to the money so we could make that five cents of interest that we would make from the bank during those six months. And um, the, 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 the due date was coming. So I drove to the bank, and I went to the ATM, and I transferred my money from savings to checking, or so I thought. And I went home, and I wrote the check, I sent it off, and I started getting all kinds of notices. Uh, one notice was from the laptop company that I um, didn't, I didn't pay them their money, and I owed them late fees and interest. I said, no, not true. And then I got some other notices. And then re what I realized is that I took the money from checking and put it into savings rather than from savings and put it into checking. And so when I wrote that check that I had all that money for, there was not enough money to cover that check because I took the money in the wrong direction. It wasn't there. Things didn't go as I planned. I pulled the money from the wrong place and I was unable to cover my expenses. In a much more significant matter, if you and I try to battle our sin from our deficit resources, we will not be able to rule over sin. Instead, we will be ruled by sin. But we have resources, not ours, His, that are unlimited. Unlimited. His resources are inexhaustible. Christian, fear not. Know this. You are dead to sin. It cannot rule over you any longer. This is a fact. This is a reality. But what Paul will tell us later, and we've implied already, you and I need to yield ourselves to God. We need to yield ourselves to God. And those resources that can enable us to rule over sin instead of sin ruling over us can be put into play. But maybe you're not born again. Maybe in your case, um, you don't have those resources. Before you can ever have God's power to overcome your sin, you need God's forgiveness and grace to deal with the penalty of your sin. So as I told the children earlier, our responsibility is to admit our sin, recognize that I'm a sin, sinner, to turn from our sin, turn to Jesus Christ, 
to ask him to forgive us and to grant us his righteousness. Turn to Christ. He will forgive your sin. He will grant you eternal life. And he will, this is a fact, he will break the power of sin in your life. He will break the power of sin. It will have no right to rule over you again unless you willingly place yourself under its authority. Let's pray together. Father, we need you as we continue to try to understand these passages, try to understand how, how it all works together. We, we want to rejoice in the reality that each believer has been set free from the rule of sin, and yet we struggle with temptation and uh, sometimes we cater to our own desires rather than yours. And so we ask that you would help us to yield ourselves to you, to, to consider ourselves dead indeed to sin and alive to you. Help us, Father, to present our members as instruments of righteousness to you, not as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Help us, Father, that we would be a help to one another, pointing each, and each other to your glorious rescue and the power that you have to change us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.